Well, good evening, good evening. Hey, we're going to get into this sermon in just a minute, but I want to share a couple of things that are just on my heart from the worship set and then just, again, just watching that video. So um, I, I, just, I just want to encourage you, you know, if, if, if you're a follower of Christ because you just want to get to heaven, I mean, that's a great reason, but it's not enough, right? Jesus wants us to have an impact in this world with our lives, right? It's, it's you, your vow of devotion to Christ can't just be so that you can be there and you're just biding your time here waiting, right? What, what we just saw on that screen should do something to your heart. Something inside of you should say, God wants to use me to make a difference in this world. That's what this table is about. That's why Jesus on the night of the Last Supper washed the disciples' feet because he was saying that. He said, hey, if you're just in this thing because you want to be with me where I'm going to be, right, where, where John 14 picks up after John 13 and he talks about he's going to prepare a place, it's not an accident that Jesus washed the disciples' feet before he talked to them about being in eternity with him. Why did he do it that way? Because he was trying to say to them, hey, I'm going to talk to you about some awesome place that we're going to be together for eternity called heaven, but you got some stuff to do here before you get there. And part of on, being on your way there is that you have a journey here that you're supposed to live out. So doing things like the walk for life and filling out these faith promise cards so that there's money to be able to support missionaries and then things that we have on our waiting list, list like care nut to be able to add them in. This is part of what we're supposed to do in the here and now, right? Last year and the year before, we raised over $30,000 through Faith Promise Giving. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? We're, we're not a huge church. We're several hundred people, but, but we should see that number be going up every year. You know why? Because of stuff that you just saw on that screen right there. It's that money's coming in so it can go right back out. 2020 vision, this year we want to see $20,000. We want to raise $20,000 through the 2020 vision. Why? Because there's more campuses that need to be launched in this region because of the message that we have about heaven now, heaven forever, about challenging people. This message that we have, it's not just about where we're going, it's about what we're doing now. Come on, we want you to be a part of it. We want your heart, when you're here in services like this tonight, your heart to be stirred to say, I want to be a part. I want to be a part of something like that. So... Father, I just pray for all of us that you would stir our hearts, that you would, you would fill us with passion, that, that we would sit in services like this, that something would come alive in us because we know that we're supposed to be a part of what you're doing in this world to reach people with the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use us, God. Find us willing. Find us willing to say to you, God, whatever it is that you would have me do, I would say yes to you. Come on, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Hey, I want to talk about one more thing, and then, then we'll get into this, into this message. So the, um, when we were doing communion, I, was, I had a little flashback to when I was a little kid, and I, we grew up in the Episcopal Church and the family that I grew up in, in this little farm community called Verina, just east of Richmond. And, and Mr. Edelton was the, the, the minister there at the church. It was called Verona Episcopal. And uh, one of my first times in my life that I can remember feeling God's presence was in that little country church. It's, when you think of a little country church, or like you see a little country church in a painting, right? It's white, it's small, it's a steeple, there's a bell. It, right? like, that's the church that I grew up in with the red velvet cushions on these white pews. And, and, uh, and I remember being in there, and, and, and when they would do communion, we would all 
walk to the front, and we would go up these two sets of, it was like a tiered platform, and we would go up there. Mr. Edelton would be behind this little kneeling wall, and there would be cushions there where we could come and, and, and kneel. And, and so they used real wine for their, their communion. And so as a, when you were a child, you weren't allowed to sip from the cup, and so they would dip your wafer in the cup, and then he would give you that wafer that, that, that you could take. And, and, when, and, and when he would do that, if you were a child, he would put his hand on the top of your head, right? And I remember thinking, I mean, he was probably just a normal guy, but I was little. I remember thinking, you know, his hands were like, he could, like, were huge, right? He should, like, play in the NBA or something, you know? But that's just because a kid and for scale. But the, I think one of the reasons it felt big to me is because I always felt God's presence in that moment. And because it wasn't just about his hand resting on my head, it was about God's hand resting on my head. And he would pray a prayer of blessing over the children. And, and, and it just, even, I just, when I was taking communion today, I just had this flashback of being a child and kneeling there in that little Episcopal church and feeling God. I didn't even understand. I was just little, right? I didn't understand about who God is and he's a good, good father and he loves me. But my heart knew all those things long before my head learned it because I felt it in those moments. And so this, I'm just going to give you an invitation tonight. We're going to get there at the end, but we're going to come back up at the end of the service tonight, and there's going to be another song. And I just want to encourage you, if you've never knelt and had someone pray a prayer of blessing over you, if you've never experienced that, I'm just telling you, it's just a spontaneous thing. I feel like God's asking me to give to you as an invitation. When we sing this last song, you come up and kneel here at the front, and Vanessa and I are going to be here, and we're going to work our way through, and, uh, and we're just going to rest our hand on your head. We're not going to do anything else. We're just going to pray just a, a prayer of blessing over you. I'm tell, if you've never had anybody do that for you, I'm telling you, it will stir your heart in ways that you cannot, you cannot imagine. So Father, we're just, I know you're asking me to share that with them now, because for some of them, it's going to take them a good 40 minutes to warm up to the idea of doing it. And so, Father, I thank you that you're, you're going to wear them down over the next 40 minutes so that when we, when we get to that moment, they're not going to be able to get up here quick enough. That when that we get to that moment, I'm going to say, I'm going to invite the band to come forward, that, 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 that people are already going to be coming up here and kneeling at this altar. Not because there's anything special about this place or about me or about Vanessa. It, it's, about, it's about you and you being able to be everywhere. And you being able to be everything that every person needs all at the same time. And I just, I'm, I'm believing tonight, God, that you're going to do something so special in people's lives that they're going to remember this moment forever. And that at some point in their future, they're going to be telling a story about a Saturday night in April in 2016 where they felt your presence because they knelt before you and somebody rested their hand on their head and prayed a prayer. And that feeling that they're going to have just, it's giving them a glimpse of forever, and it's going to inspire their heart to do something on their way there. In Jesus' name, come on. Amen. Amen. Hey, well, we are in a series that we've entitled Good News. And, and that phrase comes out of the Bible, it, but it doesn't just come out of the New Testament. It also comes out of the Old Testament. And for many of you, if you weren't here, you've been visiting, you weren't here when we launched, the, we launched this service, in, this series in January, and we're going to be in it. We're going to stay in this thing until God tells us to shift gears. And so I just want to reach back a little bit and 
pull from a couple of verses that, that we use to introduce this series to let you know the good news. Again, it started in the beginning of the Bible and it goes all the way through. And Isaiah 52.7 says this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. Paul reached to this verse when he wrote to the church of Rome in Romans chapter 9. And it says the, what the good news of peace and salvation, the news that God of Israel reigns. Isaiah 61.1, this is the verse that Jesus quoted when he launched his ministry, when he spoke in a, in a synagogue for the first time. You find it in the beginning of the, of the Gospels. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring what? Good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. This doesn't just have an application to people's practical experience, but this is speaking to their spiritual condition, right? We are impoverished spiritually without Christ. We're all brokenhearted in our humanity. We're held captive by our inclination to sin, and Jesus wants to come and heal and to set us free. The, the Greek, the New Testament was originally written in Greek and Aramaic, and the, the Greek for good news is the Greek euangelion, which gives us the word evangelist, which is, means the one who brings good news. And euangelion became the old English word Godspell, because God means good, spell means news, and then over time that word has evolved into the word that we know today called gospel, the good news. That's why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called the four gospels, because they are about the good news of Jesus Christ. That word good news or gospel appears 20 times just in those four books and then 77 more times all the way through the book of Revelation. So it's such an important theme for us which is in the Bible which is why we're spending so much time in it. Listen to Acts 20:24. 20, this is this is Luke writing. But my life is worth nothing to me. This is Luke writing about Paul. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. Listen to what it says. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Good news is for you because it's about your salvation, and then you have a responsibility to tell that good news to the world. I love in Revelation 14, 6 through 7, we're not going to go there, but if you're following in version through that app, it's going to populate there for you. I like how in Revelation 14, 6 through 7, it says that the good news is eternal. It's forever. It's one of the reasons why our vision statement as a church is heaven now, heaven forever. Salvation is not just for the future, it's for today. Eternal life is measured not just on the time continuum, but the depth continuum. So that's just a little bit of recap of, of this idea of good news. And, and so what we've been doing, we've been coming at it in different ways. But one of the things that we've been doing here at this campus, Williamsburg has been in this series. Suffolk's been doing a different series because that uh, campus just planted in January. But this is part of our model is that, that campus pastors are able to bring what God is speaking to them about a certain series. That's why we do live teaching and live worship at every campus. Campus. So no matter what campus you go to, you can get podcasts from the other two campuses. And so you have access to three messages every weekend, three today. Come on, it could be five in the future. Who knows how many more beyond that? Come on, praise the Lord. But one of the things we've been doing is we've been looking into the Old Testament and saying, where in the Old Testament has God given the world glimpses of what was going to come through Christ, right? So when the Old Testament was written, when, when, when these people were experiencing what they were experiencing then, it was pointing to the future 
of the Messiah. Now, they didn't know it was going to be Jesus. We know that today. But one of the great things to do is to now go back and read the Old Testament through the filter of the New Testament. And so one of the things that I came upon was some notes that I had from the very first summer series that we did in 2008. We moved here in 2007 to be a part of City Life. And so for that very first summer, we, we knew we wanted to do a series for the whole summer. We were meeting back in Regal Cinema back then. It's about 100 or so people meeting in the movie theater. I remember going to Vanessa and saying, I think God spoke to me about what our first summer series is going to be. So she was all excited about, you know, what it was going to be. And I said, I'm going to do a series, and it's going to be on the minor prophets, and I'm going to call it the minor prophets they still speak. And she started laughing, right? Ha! And then she said, no, really, what's it going to be? What's the series going to be? I was like, no, that's it. I was like, come on, it's going to be good, right? And so we did this series the whole summer. We did a, 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 a we were back on Sunday morning. Then we every Sunday we did a, a different message on one of the on one of the minor prophets. We made a, a Facebook page for each minor prophet and did their profile and 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 so we had a great time. I loved it, <laughs> and the church survived, and it grew. But you know what happened that summer? We had our first altar moment as a church. And they had had other altar, but since we, from, from our coming, it was the first one that we experienced leading the church forward. It was the, it was the Sunday that we preached on Hosea. And Hosea's ministry, right, God called him to marry a prostitute who kept being unfaithful to him. And God kept saying, no, you got to go rescue because it's a beautiful picture of God's grace. And we preached that sermon. It was powerful. If you were, so many of you were here and, and then. And, and in the movie theater, there's not really an altar area, right, because it's made for movies, not for church. But people were all down at the front. They were all up the aisles for people that couldn't even get to the front because it was so crowded. People were just packed into those aisles. God moved in our church, and it was the first breakthrough altar moment, and it came through that message in the Minor Prophets. Why am I telling you that? Because all the Bible has been given to us by God with great intention. Even the parts that frustrate you when you read them, you've got to remind yourself, hey, there's something in here that God wants me to see, and you've got to be willing to put the time in to dig a little bit. And so the book of Amos in this book, there are eight prophecies, there are three sermons, there are five visions, and there are five promises. Maybe when we get to the Minor Prophets as we're reading through the Bible, the blog that I write, maybe I'll do a background for each of the Minor Prophets so that might help you connect as you're reading through them. So eight prophecies, three sermons, five vision, and five promises. They're called the Minor Prophets not because they were insignificant, because their writings were smaller than the major prophets like Isaiah and, and Daniel, right? Their books were larger, so that's why they're called major. It's about the, the length of, the, of their writings, and then Amos is one of the minor prophets. So, so I want to just take a look at one of the visions, or a part of the vision that Amos had. It's in the ninth chapter, and beginning in verse 1. Now listen to what Amos writes. This is one of his visions. It's one of his five. Then I saw a vision of the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, strike the tops of the temple columns so that the foundation will shake. There were two major columns that were at the beginning of the steps that would take you into the holy place. One was called Boaz. If I was standing on the portico looking out at you, Boaz would be on my right, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and uh, Jaquin would be on the left. And Boaz means strength, and not Jaquin, Jaquin, Jaquin on the left. I'm thinking of uh, Joaquin Phoenix, right? He's throwing me off a little bit. 
So Jacob and Boaz, right? Boaz means strength, and Jacob means he will establish. And so these are the columns. He's talking about striking these columns. They were massive columns. So the idea of them shaking, right? Amos would have been going, what, you know, what's happening here that these things could shake like this? Bring down the roof on the heads of the people below. I will kill with the sword those who survive. No one will escape. This is our verse for the kids in kids' church tonight. No, I'm just kidding. Right? There's some violent parts to the Bible when you're, when you're reading it. We like the stories where Jesus has let the children, let them come and sit on my That's part of who God is. This is part of who God is. Because sin is ugly to God. And what's powerful about this vision, which is one of the reasons why we say don't read through the Bible too quick because you're going to miss stuff that God put in there for us. What's powerful about this vision is where God is standing and because he's standing in a certain place, it means that he's gotten up and moved from the place where you and I are desperate for him to remain. See, when you look at the temple, let's say from a bird's eye view, in the Old Testament temple, Solomon's temple, you've got the holiest of holies, which is this inner room. The Ark of the Covenant is there, right? And then there's this big curtain that separates it. And the high priest can only go in there once a year, just once a year. And you come out of that, and then you come into a long corridor that's rectangular in shape. It's called the Holy Place. And that's where the altar of incense is, and the shoe bread is there, and the, the, uh, the oil lamps are there. And, and, and then only priests are allowed in here, certain priests, to do certain types of activities. Then you come out of the Holy Place, and then that's where you come onto these steps. And there's where Boaz and Jacob are, these two big columns. And you come down the steps... And then there's, there's this big basin, and then there's a big altar where the sacrifices are performed. If God is out here by the altar, guess where he's not? In here. I don't know if you ever heard your mother or father say to you when you're little, I heard it a lot, oh, don't make me get up and come over there. Anybody heard that? How many of you said this to your children in the last week, right? Oh, yeah, come on. Some people are raising both hands, right? Don't make me get up and come over there. When did you tend to hear that? When you were doing something? Yeah. You never heard your parents say that when you did something good? It's when you're misbehaving, they would, right? Don't, do not make. God was saying to Israel, Oh, you're going to make me get up and come over there. Because if he's not in the holiest of holies, and he's out where the altar is, the altar represents a place of judgment. The holiest of holies represents his mercy. And the reason why in this vision he's gotten up from where he usually is and has come down to the altar is because the Israelites have forsaken God. In fact, not only have they begun to worship other gods, they have begun to forsake the responsibility and the sacrifices that they're supposed to perform at the altar. The sacrifices are at the altar are important because in God's spiritual economy, there has to be a price that's paid for sin. That's why these sacrifices had to be performed. And so when the sacrifices are being performed, the judgment of God is transferred to these creatures that are giving their life for the sake of the people that makes his mercy possible. All of that is pointing to who? To Jesus. All of that 
is God telling a story that we need to understand? All right, Exodus 37. We're building something here. Come on, building something. Exodus 37, 6 through 9. In the holiest of holies, there wasn't much in there, but the most important thing that was in there beside God's presence was the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's the same thing that you saw in Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, I'm just kidding. Then he made the Ark's cover. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Then I'm going to read out of the New American Standard. If you were at uh, CYP at our house last night, right? Amy was setting me up last night. She didn't even know it. You got to read out of multiple translations, right? She taught us that because different translations render it different ways. I want to read out of the New Living, then we're going to switch over to the New American Standard. Then he made the Ark's cover, the, what's called the Place of Atonement. So the cover of the Ark of the Covenant had two names. One was the Place of Atonement, and one was the Mercy Seat. The Place of Atonement, we're going to talk about why that is. The Place of Atonement, it's from pure gold. It was 45 inches long and 25 inches wide. And he made two cherubim, which are like angels, right? Two cherubim from hammered gold, and he placed them on the two ends of the atonement cover. So you have this box, right? There's a gold top that drops down on it, right? It's the cover. And on this side, there's an angel. And on this side, there's an angel. He molded the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all one piece of gold. The cherubim faced each other and looked down on the atonement cover with their wings spread above it, they protected it. But that's why you can't just stop at the New Living Translation, because that's a poor translation. Because they weren't protecting it. I mean, listen to the New American Standard. I'm going to read it all again. Verse 6, Exodus 37. Oh, come on, this is good. He made a mercy seat of pure gold, right? So here in this translation, we're told it's not just called the place of atonement, but it's called the mercy seat. Both of those names are important. It's not which one of these is right and which one is wrong. They're both important for us to understand. He made a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and, and one and a half cubits wide. That was translated inches for us in New Living Translation. He made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. He made the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat. So all just one piece of gold shaped as this cover. The cherubim had their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces toward each other. So they were toward each other but looking down. And the faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. It, and, and, and so in the New American Standard, it says they covered it. Now, now when you study the ancient Hebrew, this word for their position in the Hebrew are the letters N, D, it's the letters D-A-B. No, I'm just kidding, it's not. I'm just kidding, it's not. But that's what they were doing. This is 2016, right? But in Old Testament days, it was a double-winged dab. And when you get to heaven, and everybody's dabbing the double-winged dab, they're going to pull Cam Newton aside, and they're going to say, now we know how you like to do it, but this is how we do it here, Right? What were they doing? They were protecting the Ark of the Covenant because God doesn't need protecting. 
See, see, this is where sometimes certain translations of the Bible, they, 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 they don't understand the nature of God. And so they, they translate it in a way that causes us to miss some things that are important. They were not protecting it. They were covering it. The reason why it's important that it was a cover and not a protection is because of the prophetic picture that it's supposed to be to us. If you read it as protection, you miss the prophetic picture of what it's supposed to be and telling us about what Jesus is going to do for us when he comes for us. It was a cover because inside there were three things. There was a bowl with manna in it. There was Aaron's staff, which budded supernaturally, these almond blooms. You can read about those stories in the Old Testament. It's another sermon for another time. What else was in there? The Ten Commandments. Stones from Mount Sinai in the Ark of the Covenant. They were in there. You know what they represent? The Ten Commandments and all the law of Moses, they represent the perfection of God and the imperfection of humanity. It represents the imperfection of who we are and that we will never be able to fully live up to the standard of the law that's given to us. That's what the picture of the Ten Commandments are in the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the Ark of the Covenant because it's the terms of the covenant agreement. It'd be like if when you bought your house and you signed paperwork for 14 hours, right? You need Tommy John surgery when you walk out of the lawyer's office. And, and it would be as if they gave you a box that you would keep in your house with your mortgage contract in it to help remind you of your responsibility in the agreement. That's what the Ark of the Covenant was. It's called the Ark of the Covenant because it was to remind them of the agreement, the covenant agreement that they had entered into with each other. The problem with this covenant agreement was that it was going to be impossible to keep. You see, it's called the mercy seat. It's a cover, and now I'm not making this up. This is true. The Hebrew word for cover is the same word for seat. It's the same word. So that's where this term mercy seat has evolved from over time because in the Hebrew it is called a cover, but it's a prophetic picture of a mercy seat because God is there because he's covering our sin. It's called a mercy seat because he knows you're never going to be able to fulfill it. And so he sits there as a picture of hiding our sin because we will never be able to live up to his standard. And he stays here because of the activity that's happening out there. He's able to stay on the seat of mercy because the activity at the altar is one of sacrifice where judgment comes. It's called the place of atonement is you've been tracking with us in our series, atonement is a fancy word for I am at one with God. It's called the place of atonement because it's the way that the Israelites were able to have a relationship with God. Not because they deserved it, it's just the opposite. Not because they lived up to the standard, just the opposite. God made a way for them to be at one with him through the system of sacrifice. He was able to be merciful to their imperfection because of the activity at the altar. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish 
but have everlasting life. When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, this weekend after Easter, right? Just after Easter, the people began to understand what God had been talking about in the Old Testament for centuries. Jesus is the activity at the altar once and for all, for all people, for all time. So God never has to get up from the mercy seat ever again. He can stay there because of what Jesus did here. And when you embrace what Jesus did for you on the cross, on the altar of his death, then you become a candidate to receive the mercy that flows from the place of atonement. It's why when Jesus died, a lot of crazy stuff happened. It says that cemeteries had earthquakes and people came to life. And that curtain that separated the holiest of holies from the holy place was torn from top to bottom. Not so God could get up and come out here and remind us of how bad we are, but so that we could get up from how bad we are and to go be in his presence in a way that only one person in all the world could do once a year before that. The activity of Jesus at the altar gave us access to the presence of God and his mercy. Now, we like mercy. Anybody else here like mercy other than me? We love us some mercy. Mercy comes with responsibility. Mercy comes with expectation. Mer- mercy comes with, with a responsibility to now go and live your life different than the way that you did before. God knows full well that we're never going to fully meet the standard that he has for us. That's why we're always going to need that mercy. But he expects us to grow through some of my brokenness in some measure. So what's the evidence that you are a benefactor of the mercy that comes from the place of atonement? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. You guys are helping me out. Exodus 30. I'm going to start reading in 22. I'm going to read a stretch here. I'm going to come down to 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, collect choice spices, 12 and a half pounds of pure myrrh, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant calamus, and 12 and a half pounds of cassia, as measured by the weight of the sanctuary shekel. And also get one gallon of olive oil. And like a skilled incense maker, blend these ingredients to make a holy, holy anointing oil. Use this sacred oil to anoint the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the table and all the utensils, the lampstand and all of its accessories, the incense altar, the altar of burnt offerings, and all of its utensils, the wash basin with its stand. Consecrate them to make them absolutely holy. After this, whatever touches them will also become holy. Anoint Aaron and his sons also. These were the first priests. Consecrating them to serve me as priests. And say to the people of Israel, this holy anointing oil is reserved for me from generation to generation. It must never be used to anoint anyone else. Do not post this recipe on Pinterest. You must never make a blend like it. 
for yourselves. It is holy, and you must treat it as holy. Anyone who makes a blend like it or anoints someone other than a priest will be cut off from the community, excommunicated. Serious business, right? Proprietary rights to this special kind of oil. What's up with God? It seems a little uptight, doesn't it? This is mine. You can't use it. But we know that's not who God is. We know that's not the nature of his heart. Because of everything we just talked about, about mercy and Jesus and his death for us and grace and forgiveness, why would he now be so uptight about this oil? Because everything in the Old Testament is a prophetic picture that's pointing us to a place of understanding of who Jesus is and what he does. But it's also a prophetic picture, come on, of not just what Jesus does for us, but what he expects to come from us after we're the benefactor of his mercy and grace. Matthew 3, verse 8. Got to love some John the Baptist. Listen to what he says. Prove by the way you live that you have repented from your sins and turned to God. Let's read that again. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. We have four numbers that mean something to us here at City Life. I think this is going to be the series that we're going to slip into when we come out of the good news. It's our discipleship model. We call it praxis. It's a Greek word for deeds. And the four numbers that mean something to us are the 1, the 6, the 12, and the 24. The 1 is an invitation. It's the invitation that we connect to the verse in 1 Corinthians 11.1 where the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Some translations render it, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We call it an invitation because when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, that's the invitation that God gives to you. He says to you, come on, let's learn how to be like Jesus. Right? The six are the six foundational commands to everything that Jesus taught. To follow him, to love God, Right? To care for one another, that's that verse out of love others of I has loved you in John 13, right? Be perfect, go everywhere, be filled with the Spirit. Six commands. If you're going to embrace this invitation to become like Christ, you've got to begin to obey these six commands that he's given to you. How do you obey them? You obey them through the 12 pathways, the one, the six, and the twelve. Twelve pathways are spiritual disciplines. It's reading the Bible. It's gathering. It's service. There's 12 of them that are on our website. When I walk in the 12, I obey the six. And when I obey the six, I am accepting the one. What are the 24? Let me read you this list. We're hoping to come out with a booklet that walks people through by the end of the year. This is the addendum of the, of the 24. Let me read them to you. Authentic. Content hospitable, truthful, persevering, wise, hopeful, loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, humble, grateful, merciful, honorable, principled, selfless, fervent, forgiving, believing, and self-control. 24 virtues. They come from the five great growth lists of the Bible. One of them is the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. There are five great growth lists that this great scholar of our modern day world, George E. Wood, Dr. Wood, has identified. These 24 virtues, see, when you accept the one, right, you have to obey the six, and you obey the six by walking in the 12. When you do that, your life becomes spiritually fertile. 
And these virtues, they just begin to grow inside of you. See, at City Life, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the things that you're not supposed to do. We do sometimes. Because we're the firm belief, if you get busy doing the things that you are supposed to do, the stuff that you're not supposed to do isn't going to be appealing to you anymore. When these 24 virtues begin to flourish in your life, it has a tendency to push out all the stuff that doesn't belong there. Why am I talking about these 24 virtues in connection to this fragrant olive oil? Well, it's because in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Make sure Haley's not in Chronicles. <laughs> had to. I had to. Okay, all right. All right. That's great. Inside joke with CYP. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in 14. Listen to this. But thank God, this is Paul writing to the church of court, but thank God he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ, right? He's talking about the good news everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. Why is that? Because it's a reminder of everything that they're not and the fact that they have rejected God. But to those who are being saved, come on, that's you and me. We are a life-giving, what? Perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? What's, what's all that fragrance and olive oil from the Old Testament and why he was protecting it and saying, hey, this is for you. Because God was trying to help us to see that there would come a day when Jesus would die for the sins of the world so his mercy could forever be given to us. And part of the gift of his mercy is that his spirit begins to live inside of us. And our lives are supposed to be the fragrance of Christ in the world. And what does the fragrance of Christ smell like? It smells like these 24 virtues. That's what it smells like. And so God was saying, hey, don't use this in an ordinary way because then you're going to dilute the prophetic imagery that it's supposed to carry. Character is sacred to God, and it's serious business to Him. See, that's the healthy tension between His mercy and accountability. Mercy and grace is not freedom to now go and do whatever you want to do because you know you're going to be forgiven. Mercy and grace is to say, now because the Spirit of God lives in me, I'm going to be able to conquer things in my life that I would have never been able to do otherwise. So a couple of weeks ago, we'll talk about the Dearmans because they're not here. That's what happens when you get away for the weekend, celebrate your anniversary. You guys are a tough crowd tonight. Tough crowd, aren't they? So a couple of weeks ago, Paige is one of our service coordinators. She found a purse after service over, over there. And, and she said, does anybody know whose purse that is? I said, no, just, just put it in the offering basket. We'll worry about it later. No, I didn't say that. I said, all right, see, so you, you loosen up a little bit there, all right? 
So I, I said, well, Paige, why don't you, why don't you just look in it? And so she's like, what? I said, well, we've we got to find out whose it is because somebody you know, thinks that they lost their purse. And, 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 and so she, she gets it. And I said, it's okay. Just look at it. There might be a phone in there. You'll be able to pull it up. We'll be able to connect that name. We'll be able to you know, reach out to somebody to let them know that we have it. And so I go back to my conversation. And I look over. She knows. I ask her permission to tell the story. So she knows. So, so I look over. I kid you not. She has this pocketbook. She has it. Let me borrow your pocketbook. Purse, bag, bag. I'm 49. It's a pocketbook. I look over. I'm not kidding you. This is what Paige is doing. It's not a new kind of dab, right? She's sniffing the pocketbook. I turned around and said, what are you doing? Why are you smelling that pocketbook? I was like, she's getting serious about figuring out who this thing belongs to. This is what, this, I kid you not, she said, this smells like your daughter. This smells like Claire. So I said, give me that pocketbook. I reach in there. Of course, this is all of Claire's stuff in this pocketbook. I said, how, how, you're scaring me right now, Paige. You're taking this service coordinator to a whole nother level. So if you ever see Paige smelling something, she's trying to figure out who it belongs to. Because apparently her olfactory senses are pretty well attuned. It's not a spiritual gift that's listed in 1 Corinthians 12, but I think God's talking about adding it. There's going to be an edit. What do you smell like when you're at work? What do you smell like when you're with your wife and nobody's looking and people can't hear you? What do you smell like when you have access to a computer and no one's going to know what you look at? What do you smell like when you're in your car all by yourself and Somebody cuts you off or slows down in front of, what do you smell like when people mistreat you? What do you smell like in the parking lot before you come in here and try to smell like something different around other people? God says to you and to me, there's a fragrance to your life. And just as Paige was able to pick up that pocketbook and say, this is Claire's. Anybody in this world should be able to pick up your life give you a sniff, and say, this belongs to Jesus. That's what mercy is supposed to do for you. That's what grace is supposed to do for you. And that's what it's supposed to do for me. It's one of the reasons why this discipleship journey, we take it so seriously here at City Life, is because we want you to smell different when you've been here for a little while. This table says to you, and it says to me, get busy doing what you're supposed to do in this life. And when you begin to develop this character that God wants to put inside of you, when you get out there and start doing the stuff that you're supposed to do, you're going to see an impact that you never thought was possible because of who Jesus Christ is in you. And the only way Jesus Christ is able to be in you is because of his activity at the altar that enables God to stay on the seat of mercy. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. So, as, you know, we've been talking about for, for, for several weeks now, we're, you know, we're excited about 
Uh, you know, we've been here in this building since 2008, and the door that God has opened up for us to move, we do our offices and all of our small groups, Bible studies, leaders meetings, all of that happens at North Riverside Baptist Church. The only thing that happens here is this Saturday service and our midweek Wednesday service for youth, and all of that's going over there. And there's a massive renovation project that's going to begin next week there. It's just, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. And we're doing our first weekend service there. If, if the schedule uh, cooperates with us on Mother's Day weekend, it's going to be a great celebration for our church. And so as we were leading up to, to that vote, because North Riverside Baptist Church had to vote as a congregation as to whether or not they were going to invite us to come, and so I went on a 15-day fast leading up to that vote. And so on Tuesday night, March 8th, I do the opening prayer at the city council meeting probably a couple of times a year. And so this was one of my scheduled nights to open with prayer. And as I'm heading downtown that Tuesday night, I'm stopped at a stop sign and there's a person on the corner on their phone and they're like pointing at my front tire, right? So I'm downtown in Newport News. It's late at night. I'm like cracking my window like this much, right? He's like, you need air in your tire. I was like, all right, thanks. He said, no, 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 you, you, need, you need air right now. So as I drove away, I could hear that squishy noise, right, of a tire. A tire makes a really unique sound right before you're about ready to ride on your rim. Like, my car's making that noise, right? So I'm all dressed up in my coat and tie because I'm trying to look the part for the city council meeting, right? I can't show up and pray like this. Well, maybe I should, right, one week. This is how we do it at City Life. It's okay. And so I get into the parking lot and say, you know what, I'm just going to worry about it later. I'm not going to think about that right now. The car's going to be out here when, I, when I'm done. So I go in, I do the prayer, and I come back out. And, and uh, I'm thinking, now, I could call AAA because we have AAA. But if I call AAA, my father, who passed away a little over a year ago, he would come down out of heaven and smack me right across the face, right? He'd be like, boy, I didn't teach you how to change a tire so you can call AAA. That's for your wife. Is that for you? Oh, I could hear him saying it, right? I'm laughing. So oh, I'm changing this tire. So I take my jacket off and my tie and roll my sleeves up and get out there. Of course, the jack looks like something that came out of Toys R Us, for, you know, from my little sob. And so I'm cranking this thing up and cranking and cranking. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to break a little bit of a sweat, getting a little lightheaded. Like, what's my problem? I mean, I'm not that out of shape. So then I get to the lug nuts. I think the guys at the shop turn that impact wrench on 50, if there's a 50, right? Get it right on there, good. I'm in the parking lot standing on the wrench, right, with my hands on top of my car trying to break these lug nuts loose. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to faint. People are going to come out of the city council meeting. I'm going to be laying in the parking lot, passed out, bleeding from where I hit my head, and they're going to go... Isn't that the pastor that just prayed for us? It'll be the parable of the Good Samaritan all over again, right? They'll be stepping over me. And then I had this, I had this revelation. I have not eaten food for about seven days. Of course I feel like I'm going to faint. My body is saying to me, bro, if you're not going to feed us, that's one thing. But don't be changing a tire, right? Don't, don't be trying to change a tire when you're not eating any food. I'm laughing. So I just slowed down a little bit and took my time, got the tire changed and was on my way. And I was driving away. I thought about, I didn't know when I was going to use it, but as I was praying this week, I felt like I could use it tonight. I thought about this moment, this moment right here. 
See, there's times in our lives where we make a decision about whether or not we're physically strong enough to do something, right? Can I do it or can I not do it? And we hang in the balance there. When it comes to your salvation, when it comes to everything that we talked about tonight, I don't care how strong you are, how fit you are, how much weight you can lift, how far you can run before you break a sweat. You are not capable of fixing your own life. You cannot do it. No matter how determined you are, no matter how stubborn you are, no matter how tenacious you are, you cannot change your own flat tire of your spirituality. You are born broken. I was born broken and we're desperate for God's mercy that only he can give that can only come through Jesus Christ. That's it. Through him and him alone. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads right now. I just want to create a moment of privacy for people. Let's just create a moment of privacy. Then we're going to do this song and then if you want to come forward, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. If you're here tonight and you would say to me, say, Fred, I'm not going to do anything else but ask you to Raise your hand in a minute, and then we're going to pray a prayer together. And then everything else you do after that's up to you. But if you're here tonight and you would say, Fred, when I look through the story of my life, I cannot find a moment in time where I made a vow of devotion to Christ. If you look through the story of your life and you would say, I cannot find a moment where I said to God, I know that I cannot fix myself. Jesus, I need you to help me. And then in that moment, you made a promise to him. You accepted his grace, and you made a promise to live for him. We call it a vow of devotion because I think people understand the seriousness of a vow, and that's what it's about. So if you can't find a moment in time in your life where you prayed a vow of devotion to Christ, I'm just going to ask you to slip your hand up where you are. Just slip it up. Just between you and God. That's why we create this moment of privacy. If you're here tonight and you say, I can't find that moment in time where I made a vow of devotion to Christ, just slip your hand up. Just where you're seated. say tonight I know I don't smell like Jesus like I should and I gotta stop trying to change my own tire and I need to rely on the power of his spirit to change who I am if that's you then I'm gonna invite you to slip up your hand tonight this is just between you and God I need to change the fragrance of my life just between you and God just between you and him Father you see the hands that are up tonight and So what we say is what we always say, God, we're desperate for you. For the power of your spirit to be at work in us that's only made possible, Jesus, because of your death on the cross, because of your activity at the altar that keeps God on the seat of mercy. Let that mercy flow to every one of these people that has their hand up tonight. Let it flow. Let it flow in Jesus' name. Stand with me. We're going to sing this song. I'm serious. If you're here tonight, you've never had anybody pray a prayer of blessing, or maybe you have, and you're saying, I just want someone to do it again. And we're just going to, invite, we're just going to sing this song one time through. If you're, I'm just going to invite you to come and kneel up here. Vanessa and I are just going to come and put our hand on your head and just pray a prayer of blessing over your life.